going to start by reading a text from John's Gospel. John 10, if you want to pull it up on your phones or your Bibles. Uh, beginning in verse 27. Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. Um, Perseverance of the saints is the doctrine that says God's elect, God's people, God's sheep will make it home. This doctrine brings assurance to the Christian, like, like praise God, I'm going to wake up in the morning and know that I'll still be a Christian. Um, but it also brings controversy, like, what's up with all the warning passages? Haven't you read the book of Hebrews? Or, or like, so many of my friends are no longer walking with the Lord. What, what's up with that? The, the, the elders at RP, we believe that, that for those who are truly Christians, those who have been given new hearts, who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that God will finish what he began in them. That Christ's blood is sufficient for their entire salvation, from justification to sanctification to glorification. We believe, like the prophet Jonah says, salvation belongs to our God, from the gift of faith all the way until glory. Well, today, I get the honor of introducing one of my best friends. Uh, Josh Waltz is the lead pastor at Parker Hills Bible Fellowship. Just up the road, you can actually see it out the window. Um, he's been there since 2007, so you're coming up on 20 years of ministry in one place. Praise God, bro. <laughs> um, he's married to his wonderful wife, Andrea, for over 25 years now. Yeah. <clears throat> 26. Yeah, 26 years. They have five awesome kids. Four of them are now out of the house. So get a lot more reading time in, right? <laughs> Josh earned an MDiv from Southern Seminary in Kentucky. He's from, he's from Wisconsin, which is the cheese state. And, and, and no joke, I got to spend a, a few days with him in, in Wisconsin. And that's literally what you do on a Friday night. You go visit a cheese castle. You see, you know, big... Um, um, uh, Signs. Big signs of cheese on, on the wall, and you get hungry to to eat cheese, and 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 that's that's Wisconsin. But but even even more than cheese, Josh's passion is for the local church. He he loves expository preaching. He's officially an instructor for Simeon's Trust, which is a a global preaching um, workshop where he helps pastors grow in the art of preaching. Um, and today. He's going to help us walk through this idea of perseverance. Um, but, 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 but we're going to look at it from an interesting angle. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. We persevere because God, he preserves us. But that's one side of the coin. And feel free to ask all your hard theological questions in our Q&A time. But, but this evening, we want to also spend a good amount of time on the other side of the coin. Since this is theology on the ground... Like, for instance, how do we obey Paul's words in Philippians when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? All the while, as Paul continues on in that passage, he says, for it is not you, but it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the question is, how do we work out our own salvation? How do we persevere? And the reason I I wanted Josh to tackle this topic is not only because he's 50 now, and according to him, that's the age where you can actually say something, (laughs) but also because I don't know a more intentional person in the world. Everything Josh does has a purse of a, a purpose. He, he probably has a philosophy, a written, a written document for why he does everything. And I also know at the top of that list and in why he does most things is to have Christ formed in him. Um, so bro, I want to say thank you for being someone over the last 10 years or so that I've been able to imitate as you imitate Christ. And thanks for being on Theology on the Ground for the first time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for that intro. And uh, you know that I consider it a privilege to be your friend and to be here and to talk about these things. And um, yeah, to hear you say that there's been any usefulness in your life that uh, God has used me to to help you... um, follow Christ is just music to my ears. I mean, that's what I want to be in people's lives. So thanks. Amen. Sweet. Well, let's jump right in. So, so Josh Philippians one, six says he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, how do you understand the theological doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or, or as some like to call it eternal security? Yeah, I believe eternal security is the divine side and perseverance of the saints is the human side of the same phenomenon. Namely, that whom God, those whom God calls, he keeps and brings them all the way home. Or to put it in terms of what Jesus does, those the Father gives the Son he never loses. He never lets go. Um, That's eternal security. Perseverance is the human side. And it just matches my understanding of what it, part of what it means to be created in the image of God, that God never stops engaging with us as creatures made in his image. In other words, when it comes to this doctrine of eternal security or our perseverance, it's not like God, um, turns us into robots or, um, uh, you know, creates in us some um, impulse that will never be violated or uh, will ensure that because he's done something now we can coast. We're, we're 
moral agents, again, made in his image and continue to make choices day after day after day. And there's a mystery here. I can't fully explain how it is that Jesus holds us and never lets go those whom the Father has given him. And at the same time, we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. I can't fully explain that. All I know is that I have a responsibility to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. So for me, perseverance, I've thought about this a good deal. Um, and, And I think I describe perseverance is waking up in the morning aware that eternity will start someday but you have good reason to believe it won't be today. You know what I mean by that? Like heaven will start someday. My future life with God will launch, but I have good reason to believe it won't be today. So I need to conduct myself in a particular way today to make sure that the day that I meet him goes well. Now building off that before I ask the next question, um, is that kind of how you see the warning passages working themselves out because it seems like there are some texts like in Hebrews chapter six, where, where there are warnings to the Christians that if they fall away, that it it implies they can fall away. Yeah. And you and I've talked about this. So at least, you know what I'm going to say, but I, I think people bring a question to those passages, which is a natural one. It's just not the one the author is interested in. The natural question we want to ask is who are these people? What's the identity of them? Hebrews six is so strong. Um, and there are many others like it in that book, but, um, just get one of those verses up that makes it sound like, gosh, this has got to be a Christian. Verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then fallen away. Grab that verb from the beginning of the sentence. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. And so the natural question is, you know, who are these people? I don't think that's the question the writer of Hebrews is interested in at all. His what what he's interested in is this exact question we're talking about. How do Christians get all the way home to Jesus? And he wants to talk to Christians about the human side of it. And one of the ways that a thoughtful pastor gets his sheep all the way home to Jesus is to warn them, don't stop running toward Jesus. Don't stop trusting Jesus. Don't turn toward whatever system it is that you think will save you, whatever philosophical construct is your hope, whatever sins are most attractive to you, you give in to those and it will be serious problems for you. So in other words, the function of the passage is to warn Christians, keep on running, keep on leaning on Jesus, keep on holding on to Jesus. And it's one of the things God uses to get his people home. That's awesome. So the warnings are the means themselves to keep you preserving. Yeah. yeah. Persevering. Yeah. yeah. So the right question is, how's this passage meant to function in our lives? Not who are the people the passage is describing? Yes. That's good. That's good. Um, well, next, can you explain how we make it to the end? So the other side of the coin, we, we, we have the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We, we know that God will complete what he starts, but what's our role in that? How do we play our part to finish the race? Yeah. So, There are a variety of means that God uses to keep us trusting Jesus. Um, 
some of the primary ones are some of the most simple, you know, um, keep on reading your Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we keep on trusting Jesus as we keep on taking in the word of God that makes Jesus look great. We keep on communing with Christ in meditation and prayer. Um, that makes him real and present when temptation comes. If I've been in conversation with him earlier, meditating on his beauty and all satisfying sufficiency, and then some temptation comes that could draw me away and present a threat to my um, perseverance. Um, I've just been in meditation and prayer. And so those are two of the most simple means. Um, the, the book of Hebrews makes a big deal out of friendship. You know, chapter three, um, take care that there, lest there be, this is Hebrews three twelve. take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he's warning again, right? Don't let an unbelieving heart grow up in you. And his recommendation is not actually pray a lot and read the Bible more. It's exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need these relationships that keep us persevering. Someone that speaks into our life and reminds us, look, man, you go that path. It looks really appealing right now but it doesn't deliver. It won't satisfy and worst. It will steal away your love for Jesus. So there's three or four yeah. of them. Yeah. Those and means we'll, to persevere. Yeah, that's good. And we'll, we'll keep talking about some of these in other questions, but like this next question, um, Josh, you have an extremely high view of the local church and, and I'm, I'm grateful because you've passed that along to me, but, but can you share your vision of the local church as a means that God uses to get us home? You've already alluded to it, but if you want to say anything else about the local church. Yeah. So Paul calls the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth or the pillar and ground of the truth. The fil I think buttress is sometimes used in those translations in some translations. Um, and most often in the pastoral epistles, when the, that kind of terminology is used, the truth or the message or the word, it's pretty narrowly, on the one hand, in Paul, it can sometimes be the whole body of Christian doctrine that we've been given. But in the pastoral epistles, it really tends to be focused on the gospel. So the pillar of the gospel, the the, the thing that holds up the gospel is the church. And it does that in a variety of ways, right? Christian preaching heralds the gospel out for us to see in a new connection uh, week by week as you just go through scripture, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New, preaching Christ. The ordinances are reenactments of the gospel, baptism being the beginning of the Christian life initiated through the death, burial, and resurrection, which in some way for the Christian is their own personal death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. And then communion, the, the, the ongoing nature of receiving the body and blood of Christ into my own body and blood through eating and drinking, demonstrating my need for him as my daily sustenance, my trust in him. As the church does the ordinances, as it practices the ordinances, it's holding up the truth and I'm being reacquainted with the gospel, seeing it all over again. And um, it continues to do its work in me. 
you know. And there are days where I come on Sunday morning not at all enamored with Jesus, not at all convinced of the gospel. I'm not to say I've dropped it altogether, but there are plenty of Sundays where I'm like, well, I haven't performed very well, so God's probably unhappy with me, which is just losing my grip on my standing in Christ, that he has God's approval. And so when I gather on a Sunday morning and hear a song all about, you know, God's, God's approval of Christ and his work for me, Suddenly, the church, is, the church is doing its work, being the pillar of the gospel, holding up the gospel, and suddenly the gospel has its effect in my own soul. And I'm just talking about the gatherings of the church right now um, doing this. You go beyond that to what the church actually is. It's not the gathering, but it's the people of God in my life. And then you've got a whole host of other benefits that you know I touched on a moment ago about people in my life exhorting, committed to me, modeling. You know, the blessing of the church is you see people in all different stages of life, and plenty of them are ahead of you, at least even at 50, people are still ahead of me on this journey. Fewer and fewer, but they're still out there. And I watch them. How does someone who trusts Jesus get a a, a dire health diagnosis? How do they lose a spouse and continue to trust Jesus and not just go like, screw it, this is not what I signed up for. I thought you were going to take better care of me, God, if I entrusted my life to you. So just watching other people's examples, um, hearing their admonitions when I'm going through difficulty, the church does all of those things and helps me persevere. That's good, bro. Um, that's super inspiring, encouraging, just good reminders of what the church is. Um, you're one of the most intentional guys I know when it comes to practicing the spiritual disciplines, you already brought them up a little bit, but can you share with us your thoughts on the disciplines, what they look like in your life to keep you walking with God, to keep you persevering, um, just in practical ways? Yeah, spiritual disciplines, uh, as they are called, some people call them the means of grace. That's usually a little bigger category than just spiritual disciplines. But we're talking there about things that you do on an ongoing basis that, um, picking the right verb here is challenging, but that provoke the grace of God to be at work in your life, that that, that position you in places where God's grace flows, where his spirit works. I picture it sometimes like the banks of a river and the water flowing between those banks, the water being the grace of God. And if I get myself in places, if I position myself between the banks where God's river of grace flows, the likelihood is it's going to splash onto me. It's going to affect me. And those are the disciplines. Getting myself in between the banks of the river is reading my Bible regularly, praying regularly. Those are the main two disciplines, meditation. And then uh, for me, um, solitude and uh, uh, Sabbath, you know, some time away to just be alone and uh, spend time in the word, extended time in prayer, extended time of just silence. Um, Those are the big disciplines for me. I suppose some people would throw church involvement in there, maybe. Um, Evangelism, yep, indeed. Uh, And so for me, um, I try to get in the word every morning when I wake up. Um, I either work out first and get my body moving, or uh, I get in the word first, just kind of depending on how awake I am, um, what, what, what 
I'm drawn toward more, but it's one or the other of those. Get up in the morning and time in the word and prayer or work out and then time in the word and prayer. Uh, and I try to read through the Bible in a year, so I need a plan to keep me on schedule. Um, I try to look for where Christ is pictured. How long have you been doing that for? Reading almost since I got converted. Wow. Al- almost, Which yeah. was in high school, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was 16. So 35 years almost. Um, haven't gotten all the way through the word every year. And I've had plenty of times just like, like just this week where I had to catch up. You know, so you set this ambitious goal. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I've done that for over 30 years. And then this week I had to read three days in one because I was behind. Um, But I stick with it. Um, And so that's my uh, structure for reading. Um, what, What I usually do to start my time in the Word or my time of meditation and prayer is some kind of devotional exercise to sort of warm up, sort of like working out, you know, get your body moving before you start, you know, your max lifts or whatever. So I have a list of, I don't know if I told you about this. This might be new. Okay. I have a list of like 120 names of Jesus and I, and every one of them has a verse or two with it. And I just start with that and I pick the date and I'll, so today's the eighth. I'll, I'll read name number eight on the list and then I'll just meditate on that. And I'll actually make it a, a focal point of prayer. I'll, um, thank Jesus for being this and for being it in my own life. So today was the author of life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Start with the author of life. That's name number eight on the list. And then you jump to 38. At least I do. I jump to 38 and it's an alphabetical list. And one of the names of Jesus is God. He's expressly called God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so I'll just sit there and muse for a few moments on the fact that this, this member of the Godhead with whom I am communing, this man, unlike any other man whom I have pledged my life to follow, who sits here with me in this moment is God. I'll just, And then I'll thank him for being God for me making God known to me and things like that. And then I bounced to number 78 on the list. So I'm going by, oh wait, 68 on the list. You can tell I was a math major. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5. And I muse on what that would mean. And then number 98, the servant of God, pictured in Isaiah, several places called the servant of God. And so that gets me like, like ready to hear from him in his word. I'll either do that or some devotional reading. Some book I'm working through slowly just to warm up. Then I'll read my Bible per the schedule. Where did you get the warm-up idea? I think I've heard Martin Lloyd-Jones, he talks about that warming up to the fire you know, before you get in, into it. I don't know. I think okay. because I failed so much at trying to be regular in the Word because I would get there and I wasn't getting anything out of it and my mind was wandering and it just – and then I realized like I moved my body before I like start working out hard. I get warmed up to that. So let me warm up, quote unquote, spiritually. So So, I don't know. Maybe I I found it somewhere. If I did, I don't remember. I probably did. Um, But it was just, I I know for sure, part of it was I just would fail. I would try to read my Bible regularly and then I would quit. And so I'm like, I've got to do something that makes it more meaningful. Um, You said a couple... 
big words we can use often in church, but I would love if you just kind of unpacked it just a little bit. You said solitude is a big part of your routine. What does solitude look like? Like how, how can we put solitude into our, our daily practice to, to help us walk with Christ? Yeah. Solitude is literally just aloneness. Um, and it's a discipline because, uh, it's easy to neglect scheduling it. I, I don't get alone unless I schedule it. And so I have to like plan for it and, and sort of make myself do it. Um, <clears throat> it's also a discipline in the sense that these are, these are, you know, spiritual disciplines, means of grace. It's, it's a way by which God's, God's, the, 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 the truthfulness of the gospel and the power of the gospel becomes more real to me. It just, it, it keeps my heart tender and, and warm. So I have, I have a, a digital task list. I, I use Outlook pretty religiously and have for over 20 years. And so I just have items on there, to-do items, and a lot of them are recurring. And every four months, I have an item pop up, schedule a prayer retreat. And so I have one coming up in three weeks, the, the end of the month. I'm going to go to Camp Elam, and they give me a cabin. And I'm just going to be there alone with my Bible, and I'll probably take a computer so I can, you know, I can type faster than I can write. But I'll um, I'll be planning some sermons for the coming year, and I'll just be spending time with the Lord. So I won't be on my computer for anything other than recording ideas that I've had as I've been in solitude. Nobody goes with me. I don't usually go to communal meals when I'm there. I'm just either alone in my cabin if the weather's bad, or I'm out walking around. And I'll spend two or three days like that. Now, obviously, in order for that to happen and be possible, my wife has to be on board with that, especially when the kids were little. And she's like, I'm down. Just take your prayer time. And so I do it every four months. I try to get three a year. I never get three a year, but I try. And um, just get some time alone with the Lord. Sometimes I'll borrow a, a, a vacation home from a family in the church or something like that. But um, it's just become a pattern over the years that emerged from looking at the life of Jesus after the disciples were sent out on their preaching circuit. He said to them, come apart by yourselves for a little while. And the idea was, let's get alone. Now, obviously there's 13 of them, so they're not individually alone, but they were getting away from the press of ministry, the, 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 the requests of people and, uh, the everyday responsibilities. And it was just time to be alone. Um, I, I don't turn music on, on my phone. Usually I, I will sometimes in the morning, but I just like it to be quiet and inevitably stuff emerges in my soul that I didn't know needed to be surrendered to God. Like, I mean, if you have time, I'll get this one little story. Um, a year ago, I started to suspect that, well, two years ago, fall of 2021, I started to suspect that COVID had like stressed me out in ways and drained my emotional tanks in ways that I didn't even realize because my emotional threshold was way down in every area. Like I was a lot less patient and I would get angry quicker. I was a lot less resilient and I would like, like get teary quicker either because something was exciting. We or... never had any fights though. <laughs> During COVID none. You were always there on my side, agreeing with everything I said. Um, <laughs> And so about fall of 2021, I was like, man, I am really worn out. Well, for whatever reason, 
I don't think I got any kind of prayer retreat during that whole stretch, partly because a lot of the places that I would go were still shut down. And in fall of 2022, so a year ago now, I went to camp. And at this time of year, camps aren't like in the full swing of their big season with tons of campers and everything. I went to camp Elam, yeah. And I moved all my stuff. I think I got there on a Sunday afternoon. I moved all my stuff into the cabin, and you know, my, my, my suitcase and my sleeping bag or whatever, kind of set it up. And then I went for a walk and I walked across the campground and the camp owns a totally undeveloped chunk of land uh, a little ways away from where all the main buildings are. And as soon as I got on that chunk of land, I started sobbing. It was, I I have no idea why, even to this day, I have no idea. It's not like, it's not like I was like, oh, finally I'm away from all those demanding people. Or finally I, I get to, I don't know what. It's not like as I was walking, I was feeling this growing burden, like, oh gosh, I'm going to just break down. Nothing like that. I just got to the other, to that unincorporated, the undeveloped part of camp. And just, I was like, like racking sobs, like, you know, like, like snot. And it was, it was like, I was like, what in the heck is actually happening? And, and like, all of a sudden it passed like this weird storm. And I just, you know, kind of like wiped my eyes and, and walked around and looked around. I was like, okay, I hope nobody saw that because that was super weird. And I just went on this long prayer walk through that territory. And I kind of like waited for, for there to be like some word from God, like, you know, you needed that because I never got any kind of clarity. I just cried my full head off and felt better and then just walked and prayed. And I sort of was wondering as I got back to the spot where I started sobbing, is there going to be an epiphany? Is God going to explain why that happened? No, there never was. But it's just an indication to me of the sort of thing that surfaces when I'm finally alone. And I don't know, stuff happens emotionally and mentally and spiritually through aloneness that I have never experienced with people around, even people I really love and who love me. And Jesus did that. You know, he got alone. He got his disciples alone. Wow. So he was trying to do that. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I, I did want to, even before we move to the next question, I know we've been on the spiritual disciplines for a little while, but you mentioned the Sabbath. Um, if you can just briefly talk about that, I, I think that's a, a term. It's pretty popular, especially as, as we see so many uh, Americans, American Christians just over overdoing everything from sports for the kids to, to just packed schedules to just not having time off. And so we, we hear Sabbath and is, is this just a day off is, 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 as you talk about Sabbath, um, what is, I don't know, particular to what you do in Sabbath? Yeah, for me, Sabbath is usually Monday. It's Sabbath. I think, I think more important than what day is, is a rhythm kind of a, one in seven seems obviously to be the created rhythm, but that you establish some sort of rhythm that works for your stage in life and family demands and other things, a rhythm of work and rest. What matters is that there's a regular rhythm to it and the reason for it. So it seems like in Genesis chapter one, the Lord resting at the end of creation was meant to do two things. He uh, looked at all that he had made and saw that it was very good. So there's sort of a celebration element to it. There's a, culmination to put it in terms of human beings, not, you know, God himself. It's a reminder that all of life is not acquisition. It's not all production that there's a place for just taking a break and celebrating what you have done 
and realizing I don't need to do any more right now. I'm just going to break. So for me, it's Monday and I don't, I try not to check work email on Monday. I try not to take work phone calls on Monday. I try to let the other staff know that Monday's my day and I'll protect yours, but try to help me protect mine. And part of it is I'm no longer going to do what I'm paid to do, what I'm a professional at, what, what, what I can easily get my identity from. I'm just going to break from that and just enjoy what has been given. So part of it is uh, celebration of what has been done. And part of it is worship and connection with God. So I'm a lot more leisurely in my time in the word on Mondays, just very chill. I try not to really schedule much for myself before noon to just, just chill. And I suppose as a pastor, I might have the leisure to do that more than other folks. I don't know. I just know what my schedule allows and how important it is that I get that one in seven. Yeah, that's good. So helpful and so, so needed in our, in our culture for all of us. Um, Okay, so, so we've talked now about spiritual exercises. Uh, where is the place for physical exercise and nutrition for the Christian? Um, I'm pretty sure you work out almost every day. You probably preached earlier, then you probably had a workout in between, and then you came here. <laughs> um, you, you're mindful about what you eat. Um, what does any of this have to do with your walk with God? Is, is, it, is it working out all vanity? <laughs> Working out can be all vanity. It absolutely can be. Yeah, if you're constantly dialed into how tight your butt is and how big your biceps are, right? I mean, that's just vanity. It just is. All that's going to, all that's going to, like, you know, it, it's not the sort of thing that Jesus will applaud you for. And even, maybe, maybe even worse, because he loves us anyway, right? He may say, hey, Nice butt cheeks. I've never been attracted to that, but I know you worked hard at it. So I want you to feel good. Right? Because he's so kind. He might say that. But the worst part about it is they won't always be nice, right? They just wear out. And so it's so it's so lame if that's all you're doing it for. So I work out because I just feel more energetic. My whole body feels better. I ache, you know, less as I get older if I'm moving. Motion is lotion, you know, you just feel better if you're moving. And I work out as an expression of love to my wife and my children and my congregation. Because I'm like, I know my body's going to break down someday and I will be gone. But that'll be sad for them. At least I hope it'll be sad for them. If I've lived at all like Jesus, you know, they'll be like, oh, dang, we missed that guy. So I work out as an expression of love to my wife, primarily, and to my church family. Um, it also is an expression of love to Jesus. I want to be a good steward of what he's given me. Um, but tangibly speaking, there are plenty of days that I wake up in the morning and I don't want to go down in the little rec area that we have in our basement and I'll roll over and look at Andrea and I'll give her a kiss and then I'll get out of bed because I'm like, all right, I got to do this for her. So, um, and it also goes to, I mean, if you want to be theological about it, it also goes to my theology. Mm -hmm. I don't believe our body is a dispensable part of who we are. Yes. We are embodied souls we are we are bodies with an with a, with a with an immaterial part um mm, jesus good. intends to redeem all of us mm. and paul even says in romans chapter 8 the whole creation is waiting for our full redemption i'm adding the word full waiting for our redemption or what is it it's not our redemption that that verse that word does come up but the the creation is waiting for our, let me look it up. Um, 
it, the, the last phrase is the redemption of our bodies, but I don't remember what it says. Our full adoption as sons. Mm. That's what it is. We are waiting for our full adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Mm. That's kind of mind-boggling to me. This is uh, Romans eight twenty-three. Not only the creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wow. God does not have any decrepit children. Now, we're decrepit on this you know, uh, on this planet, but when we're in his presence, there will be no broken down bodies there. Wow. All of his adopted children are healthy and whole. Wow. And so part of our adoption is our bodies get redeemed. So our bodies are not non-essential. Wow. He loves them. He intends wow. to redeem them. Gosh, that's so good. I get to preach at your church in a couple of weeks and on the adoption and the redemption. And so I'm going to steal that from my, <laughs> yeah. Um, next question here. Um, how, how does um, persevering as a Christian help your marriage? And how does your marriage help your perseverance? Yeah. These are the two most intimate relationships in a married person's life, or at least they should be, right? Relationship to Jesus, relationship to your spouse. Um, and if it's a Christian spouse, Lord willing it is, if it's a Christian spouse, then they should be working in sync with each other. So yeah, Jesus helps me love my wife better, and my wife helps me love Jesus better. Um, so to be more specific than that, um, there are plenty of times where I'm discouraged about ministry, discouraged about me or my failures, um, losing sight of who I am in Christ or the gospel itself in those sort of daily ways. Um, and my wife just reminds me by her love for me that, okay, if she knows me this well and loves me anyway, well, Jesus probably loves me too. You know, she, she puts uh, hands and feet to the love and presence of Christ. And so she helps me keep on <laughs> trusting him and looking to him and persevering, so to speak, in my walk with him. Uh, put it the other way around, yeah. loving Jesus helps me persevere in my marriage because I know someday I will see him. Mm. And I know someday she will see him. That's good. And I think about that a lot. And when she stands before him, mm. I want to be right there and hear him saying to her, Andrea, I am so happy to see you. Welcome home. Well done. And I want to be like the one clapping the loudest. And so knowing him that I will see him and that she will see him keeps me persevering in my marriage. Mm. Imagining that moment when we both stand before him. Wow. That's good. I do think about that yeah. fairly often. And I have no idea why, for whatever reason, since I was a kid, I've thought a lot about what things are, are, are like coming, not in a fearful way, but just in a hopeful expectant all right, I'm going to feel pain now for the sake of joy and quote-unquote glory later. I've just yeah. always been wired that way. Yeah. That's so good. That's so helpful. That that has the the long game, the end game in, in mind. And, and, and the next question is very similar. And, and we met a couple weeks ago, talked for a bit about parenting, and it was so helpful for me. And our church is full of parents in the in the young years with, with their kids. And so how does persevering as a Christian help your parenting? And how does being a parent help your perseverance? Yeah. 
So being a parent helps my perseverance because it gives me better insight into the patience and love and forgiveness and grace of God. Because I feel this passionate, unquenchable, ferocious love for my kid and this, you know, slap myself in the forehead. I can't believe, what did you just do now? So nothing can stop the love I have for my kid. And yet I'm entirely realistic about my kid. So that helps me better appreciate the love of God for me, which keeps me just, you know, wanting to be around him, trust him, walk with him. Um, persevering as a Christian, in other words, walking with Jesus helps me be a better parent. Because again, in that same kind of way, it reminds me that my kids will stand before him someday. And even when they were little squirts, I would think about this. My gosh, we have brought into existence under, under God's you know, sovereignty as the giver of life. We have brought into existence a being that will live somewhere forever. So right now it's a lot of you know messy diapers and crayons on the wall, coloring on the wall and disobedience and willfulness. And I'm like, I am God's agent, and someday this kid is going to meet him. Or, or to put it another way around, I, I want my kids to be happy a thousand years from now, you know. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about that helps me realize, all right, I got to get involved in another corrective moment. But it also helps me realize I don't have to do everything in this moment, mm-hmm. right? I'm persevering, which is a lot of times one step at a time. Mm-hmm. So do a small thing today. And hope that in a year, all those small things will pile up and create a bit of fear of the Lord in this kid's heart or a bit of awareness that I'm under authority and uh, things like that. So, yeah, parenting for God. That's awesome. Um, Super helpful. Well, let's actually take just a quick five minute bathroom break and then we'll come back and we're going to, we're going to spend 25 minutes or so talking about the, the, this idea of friendship and then we'll have some time for question and answers. Sound good. Um, all right, Josh, you're one of my best friends and I know you take friendship extremely seriously. So we're going to transition and spend the next 20, 25 minutes or so on the topic of friendship in the context of perseverance. So I love what C.S. Lewis says here. I hope I'm not going to take a quote from you, but he says, friendship is unnecessary like, <clears throat> like philosophy, like art like the universe itself, for God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. So you you sent me some articles a week ago, and it feels like we are in a friendship epidemic, at least in our country. Um, so first, I just want to I want to ask 25 minutes of this talk we're going to give to friendship. Um, is this topic really worth... I don't know, giving that much time to, I mean, everyone probably has some friends. Isn't that word epidemic a little dramatic? (laughs) Well, I'm not expert in this sort of, you know, sociological stuff, but I've read a little bit about it and it sounds like COVID was really hard on friendships. Almost everybody that's too strong of a generalization, but a very high percentage of people in their teens to their 40s, a very high percentage lost some friends during COVID and a surprising percentage lost, they would say, all their friends during COVID. Um, 
and and to say during COVID doesn't mean it was because of the pandemic and it wasn't yeah. you know deaths and things like that. It was just the politicization of the health crisis, the George Floyd um, protests, and the spiking then again of the um, race relations issue in American um, culture. The sense within the church or some within the church that there was a means to the promised land through a particular elected official that if we all get on board with him as Christians, we will get a Christian America back. All of that sort of stuff sort of happening around the same time uh, was really hard on friendship. People leaving churches over masks. <laughs> People leaving churches over, yes, yes, wearing masks. Yeah. So it was a really hard stretch. Now, the the full side of the the other side of that story is that there are reports and surveys that people, some people made friends in COVID. Some people have brand new friendships since COVID. So praise God for that. You know, he is always good. He's always good. Just lavishing grace on a world that doesn't deserve him or his goodness. So is friendship something worth spending, you know, a half hour on to talk about? Well, it seems like it always is because it's just always valuable. I'm not sure I fully agree with Lewis. I love the quote, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure I fully agree with him that there's no survival benefit. I mm -hmm. mean, there's this new category of deaths since about COVID, deaths of despair. Mm -hmm. You heard about that? Mm -hmm. It happens primarily to middle-aged men who are just dying and there's not quite a traceable reason. Sometimes it's, of course, suicide. So that, you know, cause of death isn't hard wow. to discover. But there's a group, a, a small but a percentage, a measurable percentage of middle-aged men and others, but primarily middle-aged men who are dying and people aren't quite sure why. And they call them deaths of despair. And part of that is just loneliness. Wow. So there does seem yeah. to be a survival yeah. uh, uh, benefit to friendship. But what Lewis is saying does hold. It's not like we need it in order to live for the next two weeks mm. or the next two months. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it is a... It is a benefit. Well, so how, how, and to change the question up a little bit, how, how important is friendship as we seek to flourish in our perseverance? I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial for multiple reasons. Um, it should be obvious. We are social creatures, right? And, and inherently, I mean, we, we recognize, a kid recognizes the difference, a baby, an infant recognizes the difference between the face of another human being and some inanimate toy or something like that. I mean, it's, so it's hardwired in us. Lewis makes the phenomenal point that, um, there is something about friendship that makes, uh, I don't know what to, how to, how to paraphrase him, worship better. Or our appreciation, this is probably a better way to say it, our appreciation of God is enhanced by what we get out of friendship. And he has this somewhat profound but easily understood point that he makes. We all understand it as soon as you, as soon as you hear it. <clears throat> he talks about how a human personality is a created entity that is so deep and rich and, and, and textured that the only other thing that can draw all of what's in there out is another human personality. Wow. And it's not all drawn out by the same personality. So Rick and I are going to be able to draw certain qualities out of each other, certain joys, certain reactions, certain funny jokes. Rick can tap into certain aspects of my personality that probably other people can't. But there are things in Rick that I won't be able to draw out of him. 
that it takes some other personality to draw out of him. So Lewis tells uh, a, little of his, a little bit of his personal story in recounting this, that mm. he had two friends. I don't remember their names. I think it's William and Charles. Uh, are, these nope. the, are these the Inklings? Or- uh, it's not William and Charles because Charles Williams was one of them. I don't remember. <laughs> um, oh, I'm, I'm literally – I've marked the page. Ronald. <laughs> he had uh, Charles and Ronald, and Charles died. Hmm. And so Lewis's initial thought was, oh, gosh, I, you know, that's sad, but there's a benefit in this. Now I'm going to get all of Ronald. I don't have to share him anymore. And he realized he actually had less of Ronald because there were things in Ronald that only Charles could draw out. Wow. Little jokes, little smiles, little, you know, just aspects of, of Ronald's personality that were lost mm-hmm. to him. And, and so Lewis that's takes so that all the way to, to heaven. Wow. And he remarks on that phrase in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the throne room, and there are these, is it seraphim, who are crying out, holy, holy, holy? He points out that they cry that not to the figure on the throne or to Isaiah in the throne room. They call it to each other, Hmm. which is pretty profound. These angelic creatures are calling out to one another that, what they see on that throne in that person is holy, holy, holy. And so he almost doesn't quite go this far, but I get the idea. Lewis is almost suggesting that because God is this infinite being and even amazing angelic creatures like seraphim, even though there's so much beyond us in wisdom and power and purity, they're finite as well. And so these finite creatures in the presence of God continue, presumably, to see something they've never seen before, realize something they've never realized before, and they call out to one another, look at that. That is unlike anything you've ever seen before. They're calling out about the holiness of God, and they're calling it out to one another. And so Lewis, on that basis, says um, friendship is probably the human experience that is the most like what it'll be in heaven forever calling out of one another these aspects of God and these aspects of one another's personalities that in human life, because relationships are strained or we have limited time and energy, for whatever reason, in human existence, in in this limited existence, we didn't get to see all of what there was to see in one another. So I think friendship is really valuable uh, just for knowing God. This is, is, I'm, I'm referencing his book, The Four Loves. Four Loves, okay. And he takes that title from Greek. There are four Greek words for love. Most people are familiar with three of them. Um, Eros, sexual love, the love of romantic attraction. Uh, Philos, the love of friendship. And some people call it affection. And then um, uh, agape, uh, which is the the selfless love of, of unconditional commitment. There's actually a fourth love in Greek. It's called storge. It's family love, the love that you have innately for people that are sort of born to you, if you will, siblings and children. So in his chapter on friendship, he says, um, in some ways, nothing is less like friendship than a love affair. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love for each other. Friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in one another. Friends are side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. Above all, eros, while it lasts, is necessarily between only two. But two, far from being the necessary number for friendship, is not even the best number. 
And so he goes on to talk about how friendship is so egalitarian. It's so welcoming. It's so open to welcoming other people into what we have. Because typically what draws friends together is not their affection for one another. It's their interest in some other thing. So yeah, friendship is super important in our knowing of God, in our worshiping of God. And this comes from, yeah, Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Wow. So, so I mean, my next question might have just already been answered, but, but what, what, what is the biggest thing we are missing out on if we don't cultivate deep friendships? Because, I mean, there's a commitment, a time commitment even to, to having deep friendships. And we got young kids and life is full and, and, and what do we need to choose to say yes to? Like, like, what are we missing out on if, if we, like, what's at stake here if, if, if we don't do this? Well, it probably, I don't know. It probably differs from person to person what they're missing out on. Um, it's clear we're in a friendship epidemic. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Friendship is hard because it takes time. You have to give time to it. You have to schedule. I mean, you do. You, if you're parenting and fully employed and you have any sort of hobby or something you do that you don't get paid for and your family doesn't demand of you, your schedule can fill up quick. And so um, there, there, there tends to not be much time left for non-essentials. So friendship gets pushed aside. What are we missing? It depends on the person. Some people just need the encouragement that comes from a companion who's just with them and will support them and help meet needs. Um, just the presence of a yeah, yeah, person. Yeah. yeah. And, and Lewis talks about this in his chapter on friendship, that need meeting in friendship, it, you know, the, the person who received the benefit is very thankful. The other person almost doesn't want to talk about it, not because they're ashamed or embarrassed by what they gave. It's just incidental. Of course I gave it to you. You're my friend. Mm-hmm. I had a thing. You needed it. I'm glad to give it. Let's just move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some people whose biggest need in friendship would be someone that just is there to support them, fill a gap. Uh, Other people need that aspect of their spiritual life has run a little bit dry Mm. and they're kind of going solo. And if there were another person in their life that would occasionally talk with them about their own Bible reading or their own prayer life or what they got out of, you know, worship gathering on Sunday, that would really give them a boost. Mm. So some people need that. Um, Some people need the, the encouragement to just keep doing the good thing, right? Some people work out better when they're working out with a partner. So it just depends on who the person is, what the biggest thing is they're missing out on. But we can miss out on all of that if we're not giving time to it. Yeah. Wow. And and so obviously this, this is important. Um, How you you mentioned earlier, um, friends and deep friends aren't just, you know, looking at each other often there looking at something else and they have another interest. Um, if, if, if someone in here is wanting to, to engage in a friend, um, the, the, the friendship, um, but they don't even know where to begin. Like, where do you go to find friends? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's such a great and difficult question. Um, again, to some extent, it probably depends on the person, But what I know is true regardless of the person is, and and I think this probably also comes from Lewis on this, in this chapter, regardless of who the individual is, you, you almost never can find friends 
if the thing you're looking for is friendship. That's so good. You have to be interested in some other thing. Mm. There has to be a mutual interest that almost invariably, there almost invariably has to be a, a mutual interest that draws you to one another and you're both curious about or committed to or interested in, you know, city league softball or theology or, um, recreation. And so you jog and you see each other on the cherry Creek trail every day or something like that. Mm. Um, friendship is almost always formed side by side because we're looking at some other thing that's interesting to us. That's why the people that so badly crave friends and almost present as needy for them can't ever find any because they smother anyone that they get close to who, who could be a potential friend. Wow. Because all they want is something to prop them up. And friendship is typically formed so good. In, a con- in the context of a reasonable degree of mental health, I guess I would say. You yeah. know, um, I'm doing okay and I'm interested in this and you're interested in that too? Cool. You don't even have to agree. You just have to have you know, this common interest. Yeah. So um, where, 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 do you, where do you start if you don't have any friends? Um. You start at least by figuring out who you are and what brings you joy and pursue some of that stuff and don't stop praying. You know, uh, God can answer and, 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 and bring a friend in right when you least expect it. But I do want to bring that piece in. I think your walk with Christ will be really important in forming friendships because the best kind of friends are the ones whose identity is rooted in Jesus. That way, if you disagree, they're not going to end the friendship because their whole sense of self is not validated by your validation of them or violated by your disagreement with them, right? Their identity is in Christ. You can disagree on this and still preserve the friendship. Um, Nor are they like smothering and super needy and and constantly trying to either, they're, they're not that annoying boastful person, you know, who's always like bragging to one up you. That person is never going to find friends because it's always a competition. Their identity is in Christ. They're settled. Nor are they constantly trying to conform to be like you and get your approval. It's just it, having your identity rooted in Christ, meditating daily on the gospel will actually help you be a, a more likely candidate for someone to show up in your life and be like, hey, I'm going to go grab uh Lunch together, because I want to talk more about those custom cars that we, you know, were looking at when I met you, or whatever. Um, identity in Christ matters; matters a lot. Yeah. You know, having your identity rooted in Jesus. Yeah. Like when I reach out to you and want to go to King Supers and look at all the new cheese they just brought. <laughs> you don't even have to. You you could show up at King Supers, and I'd probably be there, standing by that cooler. <laughs> Looking at a big cheese wheel going, that was made in Wisconsin, man. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, I, I have a question. Um, and again, th- this answer is, is, is going to vary depending on the person. But I, I, I respect you as a friend and even what you're looking for in friends. But what virtue do you most value in a friend? Mm. Man. I did you put this question in my email? No. Okay, good. <laughs> I don't mind being asked a question. I, I read. Cold. I, I just, read the article you sent me by David French, and he he does talk about um, yeah, just 
the virtues in your friends that that can bring things out of you and and, and can and can grow you. And so I was like, oh, that'd be a good question to ask Josh. What 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 what, yeah. what virtue is he looking for yeah. in his friends? Yeah. I think one of the biggest ones is authenticity. I just want mm. somebody who is who they present. That's so good. Um, yeah. Not not pretentious. You know, trying to be something they're not. Or not beholden to some felt sense of obligation to, you know, meet a standard or whatever. Mm. I just want somebody who's authentic. I think that's one of the biggest qualities, uh, if not the biggest. I know for certain it's what drew me to Andrea, my wife, uh, besides just being attracted to her. She was the least self-conscious person I've ever met. Wow. Still is. Yeah. She just doesn't think much. Yeah. Like she doesn't think frequently about herself. She's yeah. just very free of thoughts of self, yeah. which means what you see is what you get with her, yeah. all the way through. Which is almost a definition for humility. So you, you even want that kind of virtue yeah. in, in a person. I, yeah. And I know we have a mutual friend. You know, up north, um, who we're both extremely fond of, um, who we see often, and uh, as, as you were talking about authenticity, I'm like, that's that's buff, man. <laughs> that yeah, he's <dude> authentic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Almost this this friend of ours is. Um, neither one of us will ever walk away from this guy, and I know he'll never walk away from us. But there is a rawness that comes out from a from a former pastor when he talks. Sometimes you just your eyes bug out because you're like, wow. Um, occasionally I'll hear a pastor talk that way, but I don't usually hear that many F-bombs in one sentence, you know, or whatever. Just a raw, authentic, here's where I'm at right now. What are you going to do with that, preacher? <laughs> I was like, you know what? I love you. I love you that you're, that you're willing to be that way, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we kind of jump into some Q&A time, I know you, you did spend a lot of time thinking about friendship, reading on friendship, is there anything else you would like to say, encourage, exhort, warn about friendship? Yeah, I touched on it, but I do want to just sort of double down. Friendship takes time and we have to devote time to it. The longer distance the friendship is, the more time it's actually probably going to take. Not that you need to give it on a daily basis, but you know, Andre and I spent 10 years in ministry in Michigan. And now we've been here in Colorado these 16 years or, or however many it is. Um, and so we still have strong friendships with families back there in Michigan. Well, we have an email that's out to those other couples. There's just two other couples. We have an email that we sent out to them trying to put together plans for a get together for us, you know, the, these three couples sometime in the next 10 to 12 months. Well, that's what I mean by time. You have to do a little bit of time preparing for how we're going to get together, give some vacation time, things like that. That's at least in my experience. Long distance friendships take a little bit more forethought and pre-planning. I mean, you guys know this. You have family and friendships back in California that you work hard to maintain. Um, and then friendships that are local um, also need to have time given to them. I know some people are like, yeah, we haven't talked in you know, two years and we pick right up where we left off. Well, praise God, that's one of the virtues of friendship, but mm. it will flourish more if you actually give attention to yeah. it. So give some time. Mm. As you pray for your friends, think through how can we get together again? How are we going to uh, cultivate this thing? You know? That's um, awesome, man. So yeah, and double up. You need to eat every day. So spend some time eating with your friend, yeah, you know, schedule lunch together there you go. or whatever. Yeah. Or workouts or whatever or workouts. it is. Yeah. 
That's good. Yeah. Sweet. Well, thanks, Josh. Well, let's uh, kind of transition here into some Q&A. Does anyone have any questions about anything we talked about, whether it's um, about the, the doctrine of eternal security, the perseverance of the saints, um, or anything Josh talked about in, in actual what it looks like to persevere um, or friendship or just any questions at all, you guys can uh, ask away. And actually, if you want, you can come up here so we can get it into the mic. So I'll ask you if you paraphrase it into the mic. Yeah, I'll try. Yeah. Kind of touched on it uh, in talking about in, in, in all of the subjects uh, in the past hour and a half or so. You talked about um, marriage and kids working out in <coughs> and quiet time in the mornings and solitude and camping, going to camp, and your friends in Michigan and uh, your fr- and friends in general and time and. And Andy Stanley talks about it in one of his books called Choosing to Cheat. That no matter what you do, you're cheating on something else. Mm-hmm. And so I guess practically, how, how do you, I mean, that, that just sounds tiring. The Sabbath, I mean, the Sabbath, that one in seven, now you're, now you're left with just six. <laughs> like, you're just, I'm just tired. Or, I, I mean, in, in the perfect, in the perseverance or in the persistence kind of topic. How do you how do you do all of that practically, or how do you be not? I mean, you are cheating on something, um, so I don't really know what my question is. But, no, it's good. Um, how do you, no, it's good. Yeah, the the question. Yeah. So, okay. Brian, are are you saying what are you saying no to in in describing all of these yeses? Yes, I want to do this, and yes, I want to do that, and Sabbath and solitude, and a rhythm of you know work and leisure. At some point, you're saying no to something. Is that is that your question? Like. Yeah. I'm not using that time to work at, like, just, how do you practically balance all that? And you sort of touched on it a little bit, uh, a little bit ago, um, I guess just on the ground, in the perseverance kind of way. Uh, evangelism, I mean, how do you give time to evangelism? How do you give time, just all of it? Yeah. How? Yeah. Let me try to quickly say the question, just for the sake of the podcast. Um and I'm probably going to butcher the question, so, so you might have to you might have to do it again. But 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 Ryan's asking um, so much good stuff here. I want to apply it all. But but in in, in the reality, um, if I were to start doing everything you talked about, including having a Sabbath, and so now I only have six days to accomplish all of this, um, I'm going to cheat someone in this, whether it's time with my wife, time with my kids, like how, how can I do everything? This just sounds overwhelming. Is that about right? Yeah. So first of all, let me be clear. I don't do all of the stuff even I just described perfectly well. Like my own standards, I don't live up to those perfectly well, nor am I going to be um, like the model for any other particular person. We've got to figure out our own way forward on this. With that caveat, I would say that uh, you have to decide what your big yeses are, and then everything else by default has to become a no. You know, what are my main priorities? I find the easiest way to discern what your main priorities should be 
to, I don't mean this any piously. I don't mean this weird. I'm being totally sincere about this. I find the easiest way to discern what my main priority should be is to get near the heart of Jesus, to get in his word. What does he say should be our main priorities? Our main priorities should be our relationship with him, the family that he's brought into our lives, and the calling that he's put on us, the vocation. So I am called, here's a, maybe make that a little more practical. I am called to be a shepherd of sheep. Well, at Parker Hills, one of the ways we discern who are the sheep I'm called to shepherd is our church membership process. So we have a lot of people who will attend, some people who attend for years on a, on a regular basis, but some people come, they'll attend for three months, six months, whatever, and then they bounce out. One of the ways that I decide, am I going to be is that person going to be a yes in my life that gets a chunk of my time or a no is that sort of rubric. It's I'm called to shepherd sheep, which sheep, the people who have asked us to shepherd them. And so if somebody disappears from attendance and they've not been around for four weeks, but they aren't actually asking me to shepherd them, I, I don't worry about them to put it. And so you have to decide what your main yeses are and then everything else becomes a no. To put it the other way around, or it's not the other way around, to, to put it another way, um, I, I, have you read uh, Seven Habits, Stephen Covey? Begin with the end in mind. He has you do that exercise at the beginning of that chapter where you picture, you're, you're walking up to a funeral parlor and you look at the program for this funeral service, somebody's going to be buried and there's a memorial service happening and you read through who's going to be giving a tribute. And it's like, Oh my gosh, that person's in my family. I worked with that guy. Oh, this guy and I worked together in the, you know, Kiwanis club. Do Kiwanis clubs happen? Like for me, it'd be, this is a guy I know through the police department, you know, where I'm a volunteer. And, um, here's that, that other guy is one of my close friends. So the four people giving tributes are people that knew you. And then you walk up and look in the casket and it is you, it's your funeral. What do you want those people to say about you? So I did that exercise and wrote it out. What do I want my friends to say? People at the police department to say my family members. And once you have that vision in your head for what you want your life to do in the lives of family, friends, coworkers, and volunteer organization members, um, a lot of stuff gets clear, you know, if I'm going to do that, or if I'm going to land there, if my life's going to look like that at the end, it's a lot easier to say no to all the other good stuff that's pressing in. It's a lot easier to keep working out. It's a lot easier to keep, um, reading my Bible in the morning, you know, cause I'm like, part of what I want my life to do is make it faithfully to the end. That's written out in my thing. So I, I don't know if that helps answer your question. I think the main thing I can tell you is Get very clear in your head what your main yeses are, what your main priorities are, and commit the appropriate time and energy to those. And at some point, there's just a line, just by human nature. You know, we're finite, and so we can't do the rest. But you're not as much saying no to all those other things. It's a yes to these more important things. So that's how I decide. Um, and then after a while, it just becomes a little more clear how to decide this particular day, what I'm going to do with this particular moment. You know, do I have time to have lunch with Rick when I've got so much stuff I could do at the police department or so much stuff I could do at our church, you know, after months and years of living by those priorities, it just becomes more clear in the moment. Does that help, Ryan? Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, I, I do appreciate 
whenever I text you for lunch, man, you 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 always meet, meet me for lunch. And whenever I need uh, to figure out a sermon on Saturday night at 10 p.m., you always help me out in that too. So thanks for thanks for having so much time, dude. <laughs> Or to fix our garage, or I mean, that, Part of not, it too is, not just our garage. I mean, we, he's fixed everything. We've broken our house. Every everybody in this room is younger than me. Your life does slow down a little bit when your kids are grown. It just does. Um, this has been a frenzied week, but I've chosen all of that stuff. None of it's been foisted on me. So as your kids get a little bit older, things yeah. your, your time becomes a little more discretionary. Yeah, sweet. Anyone else? So um, you mentioned a bunch of things that you do on Sabbath. I think particularly you said that the first kind of while is just you slowing down like the first three hours or so, um, just spending like a more leisurely amount of time um, for your Sabbath. But like, are there things that you're like, I will not do this on, uh, on my Sabbath day other than obvious work sort of things? Like are there things like that feels like work to me. And I guess it's, again, subjective, depending on who who you are, how you think, like what is rest for you. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that? Yeah. Do you want to repeat? Yeah. Basically, the question is, when it is time for Sabbath, what do you not do? Um, What in your mind is a, I'm not touching this, it's related to work or whatever it is. How do you have that rubric in your mind? Yeah, it is determined for me, you know, the word recreation, recreation, it's what energizes me. um, Or I say no, and I won't do the things that are draining. So um, I, I leave my phone a lot more often on my day off. I'll just leave it plugged in on this, you know, bedside table or whatever. Um, I usually don't schedule appointments on my day off. Now I'll do, you know, like doctor's appointments, things like that, like private appointments that I need to get done for my personal life. But um, usually it's a day that's unscripted. And I like that because I press pretty hard on most of the other days. And so I like it to just be a day where I can go, you know what, if I want to, I can drive up into the mountains and walk around all day. Or I can go to a movie theater and watch six movies in a row. Like, it's just, I can do what I want. Now that never happens because there's always like hobby stuff I'm interested in or volunteer organizations that I have to give some time to on my day off. But it's the stuff that recreates me, that energizes me. As opposed to amusement, right? The etymology of that word, ah, not, muse, thinking, not thinking. I try to avoid things that are brainless, like just frittering away time on my phone, playing Yahtzee or something. That's not recreative for me. That's not recreational. So just the things that energize me. Um, yeah. So the ones that I don't do, I think are the, it's a short list, but those are the things I named. I I won't take phone calls from people at church unless it's one of the elders telling me Josh is an emergency. Uh, Well, it's a no brainer. Um, I won't reply to texts that are church related emails that are church related. Um, it's just a day to unplug. And it's a great reminder for me that they can get by without me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not kind of the the point of Sabbath too, right? You're we're, we're not as needed as, as we think we are. I, I I have a question. How how do you you know 
Man, your Sabbath options sound pretty cool. Six movies in a day, walk around the mountains. I, 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 uh, I, me and Holly try to do a good job with our Sabbath, and we put our phones away. And we, it, it's, it's Friday, and it's kind of the day we, 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 we set aside to rest, and, and we're, we're continuing to kind of think through new ideas and whatnot. But, man, a five-year-old, a three-year-old who's in a tough season, and a one-year-old, it, it just doesn't. It, like, how, how do I? <laughs> Um, I love my kids, but but I'm, I'm not necessarily just feeling um, this recreation building in me. I feel pretty exhausted by nap time, <laughs> and that's my Sabbath. So, any 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 hopes or thoughts? For yeah. Me? So, Andre and I would work to create it for each other. So she would be like, you know, take your prayer retreat or whatever. I'd be like, let me watch the kids this whole day and. Here's a here's a fifty dollar you know or hundred and fifty dollar you know spa treatment or um, literally when when the kids were really little and we didn't have any money or anything she would just be like I just need space like I'd love to be able to go grocery shop because she's wanting to get stuff done she's like I'd love to be able to go grocery shopping with no kids around so you can create it for each other yeah. I'm sure you know you guys are aware of that and then have other friendships we had we had other couples who were at about the same stage of life and they would gear up and get ready and then have all our kids over to their house and watch all the kids while me and Andrea went away for a couple of days even if it was just overnight um so get some support to create you know quote quote unquote sabbath like space in your life which is shout out to the pals that gave us some space here recently <laughs> That's awesome. Any uh, anyone else? Yeah. 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 Kind of along the same terms, um, having a two-year-old and just kind of wondering, like, like my days are really exhausting. afternoon's hit and I'm just kind of like done and so just words of wisdom or even encouragement of like how to get through this young stage where I want to pour into him I want him to be a follower of the Lord I want to be um, a role model for him um, but gosh the constant discipline of the same thing every day is mind draining um, and the mundane is kind of hard so like yeah, just kind of how to get through that. Because um, I love it and I love him. I want to be home. I've chosen to be home. Um, I've chosen to leave a career to be home. Um, but it is the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> so just encouragement for, for having young ones. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really great. I appreciate the honesty of the question and the obviously the... the um, I don't know what word here, intensity of the question, the emotion of the question, because this is very real and very, very, very raw. So part, part, part of what I'm aware of in trying to answer it is just, I'm not a mom. I never was. I don't have the ability to speak into that specific experience. Um, and I admire, I admire young moms. I mean, it is, like I said, if somebody calls on my day off and it's an emergency, I'm there. Well, being a young mom, is an emergency all day, every day, right? You're just there. But you did use a word that I think was important. I think you said this stage. Recognize that it is a stage. 
there's a ton of investment, especially physically right now, a ton of physical outlay just to manage the chaos and demand of a little one. And so part of what helps you persevere in it day after day after day is realizing that the days will pass, the kid will grow up and, um, your, your demand and outlay will change. Uh, you've probably heard the, the saying like the, the days are long, but the years go fast. And so just realize that it will, it will pass. I think the one other thing I want to say that I, that I can say, not, not even being a mom, but I just, as a human, this is a human experience. Um, make sure that your only God is Jesus. By that, I mean, don't make a God out of your kid. He doesn't get to control you. He doesn't get to validate you. He doesn't get to be the source of all your joy and hope. And don't make a God out of Sabbath. That doesn't need to control you either. If you don't get it right now, okay. I'll just assume God has another way to fill my tank back up and to let me persevere in this hard calling of being a mom. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is our treasure. Not our child or the thing that my child in parenting him takes away from me, you know? And Jesus is our Sabbath rest, right? He is, yeah. So you go to him absolutely exhausted at the end of a long day and you're like, Jesus, I would like a little bit more of that piece of you. And I was like, okay, I'm gone. You know, right? You just tell him, I, I don't feel very rested right now, but um, I'm doing what you've called me to do. So keep him as your God. Don't let your kid encroach on that. And don't let even this wishful hope of like, man, all that theology on the ground talk about like Sabbath and good disciplines. I don't get any of that. Well, you know, really all we need is Jesus. These are just means of drawing near him. And if he doesn't make those available to us right now, okay, we have him. Mm. Nothing can take him away. Nothing. So that's really all I can say or think to say to a young mom, not having lived that experience. Um, yeah, I guess I'll ask one final question here, um, and we can call it a night. Um, but I think ever since I've known you, you've you know this. I hadn't even thought of this until um, you mentioned in, in that answer there at the end that this idea of called to be faithful. Ever since I've known you, you you've you've placed such a high priority on being faithful, um, how, how you do ministry is, 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 is not, um, about the number of, of even people in the church or, or the programs you guys, it's about being faithful. Um, and, and, and so like, yeah, how, how I guess, how can you kind of leave us with an encouragement as we're talking about perseverance, um, um, you know, maybe leaving us with an encouragement of, of what it looks like to be faithful. That is what this is all about, right? Mm -hmm. is, there, is there a question in there at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it, yeah, it just feels like the general version of every one of these questions, like yeah. not, not applied to parenting, not applied to marriage just applied to a quality of life, a faithful. Uh, okay. So first of all, I'll say, um, ask me when I'm 80 
because <laughs> 50 isn't a super long track record. Um, on the other hand, yes, I am. Ten years ago, you said, ask me when, when you're I'm 50. 50 so. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> so give me the question again. How do you... Yeah, I, I just... just uh, I do think there is something in this vision. Like, we can talk about perseverance and all these things. And we, we can be excited. Like, I'm, I'm excited um, about just even this idea of, like... Um, you know, doubling down on my meditation and my solitude. Um, like there, there's been a lot of reminders, but like Brian said, that there, there, there's also a lot where it can just feel overwhelming. And, and, and is there a kind of a, a, a general, like this is about faithfulness at, at, at the end of the day. Um, it, can you just cast a little vision for, for us being faithful? Like, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I for me, the most important impulse, the, the most important um, contributor to faithfulness is keeping your eye on the finish line, having a clear definition in your head of success. Um, what is a win for me in this moment, in this life I've been given, in this relationship, a clear definition of a win um, and it does take a certain, I, I use the word vision. It takes a certain amount of imagination. Now you don't have to conjure up the picture yourself. Scripture gives it to us in every one of these areas, but keep your eyes on that. Think about that a lot. I mentioned it several times, especially with regard to being a husband and a parent, but think about the fact that Jesus is a real living being and you will see him someday. Just think about that in and of itself. It will change how you live in this moment. But then think about how you want that to go. I, I want to know him fairly well before I see him. You know, I don't want to have claimed to have been a follower of his for so long and then not even recognize him or he me. You know, I want to, um, I, I want that moment to be filled with joy. I, I, I just expect there will be an overwhelming sense in that moment for me of being loved and I don't want to feel like a schmuck at that moment. Like, thanks for giving me so much. I'm sorry I kind of blew it. You know, like in 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 my willingness to walk with you. You know, and sometimes I think about like, you know, the Apostle Paul or or other people that I know in the Bible or from church history, and I'm like, I'm gonna meet that guy someday. I don't want to be like standing around listening to all of these heroes of the faith and they're kind of telling their stories. And I don't think heaven will be a place where people brag, but in one way or another, there will be something about, look, I did this and it was all worth it for Jesus. And I don't want to be the one standing there going, well, like I, I, I gave up, I gave up professional sports for Lent one year. Like, right. I don't want that to be my little contribution to the discussion, or I'll just stay silent and walk away. Cause like, well, I don't want to say anything in this group. I truly think about those kind of moments where I'm going to meet these people. My kid will stand in that circle, you know? And so think about, um, think about the end. Think about the finish line. And a lot of times I find the strength to keep going by looking back to the day of atonement. So I think about the day of my accounting and the day of my atonement. One of our elders at Berean used to always say, we press toward the accounting. And I, I just, he was 
like 80 years old and that registered with me as a 30 year old guy yeah, and I good. thought alright I'm going to well, do that one last question here In the beginning, you were saying that in the church environment, you've got all people in all different stages of life. Uh, and you said that there are people that you've, uh, 80 year olds, 70 year olds, that have lost spouses or have gone through uh, hard times. And, and to, to basically add on to this question, can you give an example of something that you've seen uh, that has displayed that faithfulness in those trying times of someone who is 75 or 80, uh, like you just said, astronaut 80? Yeah, so you want me to restate Brent's question? An example, okay, so I, I did say to Rick, okay, ask me when I'm 80 and then we can talk about faithfulness. But then I talked about how in churches you're exposed to 80-year-olds. What have I learned, specifically an example of what I've learned from an older person that has impacted me and helped me be faithful or do a thing or whatever? Okay, so in... April or May of 2021, the oldest member of our church contracted COVID, was in the hospital, was doing well, and then just took a turn for the worst and was going to die. We knew he was going to die. He was 94 years old, I think, almost 95. He was a veteran of Iwo Jima, veteran of Guam. I mean, just a stud, like soldier, uh, had been an amazing husband, had been married for, I think, almost 70 years. His wife had passed away a few years before him. Uh, incredibly fit. He had been an electrician his whole career, and so he was still up and down ladders regularly at our church, changing light bulbs and doing. And, and so he just was a model in so many ways and an inspiration. And for whatever reason, I don't know why exactly, the hospital let me visit him on his deathbed. He knew he was going to die. He just was like, they told me that they can do this therapy, and it would possibly have that side effect, and this one and that one, and I didn't want any of it. So they're just going to you know, help me sleep give me morphine and muscle relaxants, and then they're going to gradually meter down my oxygen, keeping me comfortable all the while, and I'll just die. I'm going to wake up and see Jesus. And I was like, okay. So I'm, uh, I'm like, I need to go visit this guy. So I go, and, and they let me go sit on the side of his bed. And there were multiple specific things that he had done his whole life that just stood out to me in that moment. He was a huge encourager of pastors. He constantly prayed. He used to lead our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights and was just a devoted prayer. And he was always singing. Those are three of the big things that stood out to me about this guy's life. And, uh, as I'm sitting there on the side of his bed, I'm trying to encourage him and I'm heartbroken because this didn't need to happen. Why is this guy sick with this, you know, virus and blah, blah, blah. And he says to me, my son, one of my sons is in the, in the army. And he says to me, How's Justin? He puts his hand on my leg and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's dying. And he's asking me about my kid. What an encourager. So that stood out to me. I said to him, Ralph, have you made plans for your memorial service? What songs do you want? And he goes, you know, again, he's, I don't know if you were around anybody that was recovering from COVID or worse. He's like gasping for breath essentially. And I said, Ralph, what songs do you want in your memorial service? He's like, well, I don't know which ones. I can't remember, but I think I'd kind of like to sing just... And he starts singing. He starts singing to me while he's barely able to breathe on his deathbed, trying to remember what songs he wants in his funeral. And he can't give the name, but he can give the tune and he can sing the words. And I'm like, what is happening? This is a surreal... 
And so I bought a book last month called Sing Loud, Die Happy. And it's a biblical theology of singing in the Bible, coupled up with all sorts of scientific research that demonstrates that if you sing your full head off, you're generally going to be more, more healthy, both mentally and physically. Wow. I bought that book and looked for it because of his example, a guy that just sang all the time. He, he was a trained singer. He sang with Parker Corral. He would always give us tickets to the concerts here in the Pace. And he would walk into the building to change light bulbs while he was still healthy. He would walk into our church building and wouldn't come to my office or whatever. He would just say, hello, Josh. As he walked in, the, he was always singing. So I don't know if that fits the question that you're asking, but like, I'm totally dialed into this guy, 45 years, almost 50 years older than me. And I'm watching how he dies. And he died the way he lived, singing, encouraging, praying. He's like, I'm like, okay, I need to pray with him to wrap this, you know, to tie this meeting off. I don't want to fatigue him. His family needs him as long as they can get him. And so I'm like, okay, at some point I need to transition to prayer. And, and all of a sudden he just, all of a sudden he just reaches over, puts his hand on my leg. We're talking. And, and he goes, I didn't want any of those therapies. They're just going to, I'm going to go to sleep and wake up with Jesus. And it'll be the first person I see. So Lord, we just pray now for Josh. And he puts his hand on my leg and he starts praying. I'm like, this dude died the way he lived. A huge encourager of pastors. How's your son in the army? I pray. He said to me, I pray for him every day. That was the, that was the saddest part about that death because I thought who's going to pray for my kid now that he's gone, my kid in the army. And, uh, so yeah, his encouraging of pastors, his singing and his prayerfulness, it all came out in that moment. So I'm like, all right, I need to sing more. So I don't know. There's a pretty pedestrian example, but to me, it's very real. That's good. That's good. Um, well, thanks for, uh, dropping some wisdom on us here at theology on the ground. Let me close this off with, with the verse we began with. Um, and then I'll, I'll say a prayer and we got to go grab those kids. Cause that room's got to be cleared by six. Uh, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've got to look into this um, amazing doctrine that you will not uh, let us fall away. You will not leave us. You will hold us. No one can snatch us out of your hand, God. So we thank you for this amazing um doctrine of, of eternal security. We thank you um, that you help us to persevere until the end. So I just pray for those in this room and those at RP and Pastor Josh and his family and those at Parker Hills that, Lord, you would um, continue to hold us, God, that, that, that we would be steadfast because you are um, guiding us to completion. Lord, we love you. We, we praise you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Redemption Institute podcast. You can learn more about Redemption Institute or any of our other ministries at redemptionparker.org.